1: You're listening to 89.9 KCRW, I'm Madeline Brand. The first weekend of the new year is coming up, so let us catch up with some new movies. Joining me now is Whitney Seibold, senior staff writer at Slash Film and the co-host of the podcast Critically Acclaimed. Hi, Whitney. Hello. And Amy Nicholson, she hosts the podcast Unspooled and Reviews for the New York Times. Hi, Amy. Hi. All right, first up, a horror movie from the producers of Megan, and this is called Night Swim.
0: Getting a vibe here. Do you have a boyfriend? No.
2: Hey, someone's coming over in a minute. <laughs> your mouth shut. Marco. You need to say something back. Ronan, Marco. Why aren't you saying anything?
1: Ooh, Okay, Whitney, there she is in the pool at night, eyes closed, and there is a thing below. Is this kind of Jaws in suburbia? Uh, What's
0: oh, going on? Oh, no, no. This The swimming pool is haunted. This is a movie about a haunted swimming pool, and this is when all the critics get to... S- say in unison, golly, it's January. This is when these really terrible (laughs) horror movies tend to come out right here at the beginning of the year when nobody cares. In this movie, Wyatt Russell plays a baseball player who had to retire because he has MS. They find a home in the suburbs. There's a swimming pool in the back. It has a link to an underground aquifer that's loaded with ghosts of some kind. Uh, So he goes swimming. He's healed, but the pool demands a sacrifice. There's a lot of Really uh, ominous shots of creepy things sort of floating through the water toward people as they swim. It's just as stupid as it sounds. Complete brazen (laughs) idiocy. Uh, There are a few lines of dialogue that are so, so ridiculous that... The the theater just sort of erupted in laughter, like, oh, we got a pool, there's something in the water. These things that are supposed to be really ominous, but just come across as completely comedic. I'll say that the actress who plays the mom in this movie, uh, Carrie Condon, actually bothers to bring something to the role. She's really, really trying to make this dumb haunted swimming pool movie feel like a real movie. But it's really just drive-in trash. And there's nothing wrong with drive-in trash, but I would have appreciated better drive-in trash. (laughs)
1: Amy, it's rated PG-13, so maybe not that scary?
2: Genuinely not that scary. I mean, I think this might be the most boring idea for a horror film that I have ever seen. It's really (laughs) just like scene after scene after scene of somebody going in the water by themselves, going under, thinking they see somebody on the edge of the pool and then they're never there and they get up. It's just absolutely the lack of thrills are astonishing here. I mean, the movie, I think, almost wants to acknowledge that it is very dumb. I wish it was trash that knew it was trashier. I wish it was trash that like leaned into being trashier. Mm-hmm. Because every scene where somebody says something like, oh, no, I'm scared of the pool, that gets a really good laugh, you know? <laughs> I mean, if this was made in the 1980s by a director, who knew that this was schlock, it would at least be, like, really fun. They would throw the ridiculousness in your face. But this almost seems to think that maybe there's a chance audiences might think this is a serious movie about trauma like everything else nowadays. And so it just doesn't want to risk it. Ugh. Ugh. I mean, it's horrific
1: enough, I guess, maintaining a pool and cleaning it and... Dealing with it—that <laughs> oh, could it's be a burden. I just hate film.
2: to have to bear. I'd it's have a, a terrible pool.
1: burden <laughs> to have your own pool. It is.
2: <laughs> Night swim in
1: theaters in wide release beginning today. Next up, we have Occupied City, a documentary by Steve McQueen, based on a book by his wife Bianca Stigter. It examines the Nazi occupation of Amsterdam during World War II.
0: Soon, the Nazis started to ban Jews from parks pools, shops, cafes, and schools, from all public life. Music by Jewish composers could no longer be played. In 1941, they started rounding people up. In 1942, the deportations began.
1: Amy, this tells the story of the Holocaust, but in using modern footage, from what I can tell, looking at the trailer. Tell us more about this.
2: Yeah, you know, Steve McQueen, before he became known here as like the director of 12 Years a Slave and Hunger, he was also known for doing a lot of experimental kind of museum installation type work too. And so this is like this massive project that he and his wife underwent together. They live in Amsterdam uh, often. And she wrote this book called Atlas of an Occupied City. It's just this massive book that chronicles... What happened where to who in this town during the years that the Nazis occupied Amsterdam? And it is exactly this. Like if you're taking a tour around the city and there's this narrator who has a few words about what happened to the people who lived there. You know, maybe they were taken away to Auschwitz. Maybe they hid people. Maybe they ratted people out. Maybe they made fake papers. You know, it's about the victims of the Nazi and also about the resistance. And it really focuses on the people who aren't famous, you know, the people who are kind of like more on the side of being like forgotten. And the way that they do it is, you know, no archival photos, no photos of the people themselves, no images of what the house or Amsterdam used to look like. It's all just present day. So you're hearing these stories kind of layered over images of like people running errands and, you know, punks with tattoos listening to music and, Mm -hmm. you know, kids playing in the snow, where there is any sense of an overlapping story at all in this kind of just staggering thing is that they filmed this during COVID. So you get to see like kind of the arc of a different type of occupation takeover, you know, learning that they're being quarantined, seeing anti-mask rallies, as you're hearing about like kind of pro-Nazi rallies. It's interesting, I mean, it feels like it's monumental without being an, an enjoyable watch. It, feel, it feels like monumental is the response this is designed to have. And I think probably the best part that I really found fascinating by is you hear this list of rules that they gave to families who were living with other families um, hiding out. And it's really strict, really strict rules about like, don't get close to your hosts, leave them lots of space, remember that you're an imposition. And so hearing this from a different kind of viewpoint, almost like a clinical dry one, does have like a powerful effect. But boy, this is this is this. Is, you really have to commit to this.
1: Yeah, four hours plus. Whitney, this also deals with COVID. So I'm wondering, in your opinion, if that that juxtaposition works for you?
0: Uh, Ish. It's it's not really pervasive, but you can tell through the narration and the images of these modern day protests that Steve McQueen is clearly trying to make that connection. And the most chilling shots come from the police who are watching these protests, how there are a lot of uh, armored up police uh, officers walking around the streets. There's a few shots of like the cameras that are watching people uh, while they're doing these protests. And clearly there's a little bit of overlap between those kinds of images and the fascism that the city was experiencing in the 1940s. More than anything, though, I think he is really just trying to give us a tour, remind us that the history really did seep into the walls of everything and how we tend to smash everything to the ground and change the landscape, partly as a means of forgetting. What he's trying to do is make us remember. He's trying to show us that these cities do have a living history. Uh, it it reminds me of, you know, if you ever go on a, a tour of an old city and you see a plaque randomly up on a building, you you stop and read that plaque, you realize it was on this spot that blank happened. And that's, gives you a a deeper sense as to what the community is like, the community you're living in, and the history that it's uh, relating to. A lot of people forget that, especially here in the United States. It's, I I hate to use the critic word, but it is monumental. It's really astonishing.
1: So worth the time and effort to Uh, watch
0: this? Worth the time. It it is 4 hours and 22 minutes long, and it will play with a 15-minute intermission. But uh, it is wonderful to just sort of tour, to walk around, and to let Steve McQueen show you around.
1: Occupied City in select theaters, including Landmark's New Art Theater, beginning Friday. Next, we have All of Us Strangers. It stars Andrew Scott as a lonely, grieving London screenwriter who begins a relationship with his neighbor, Paul Mescal. I'm assuming you're not with anyone. Never see you with anyone. This your mom and dad. They died just before I was 12. I'm trying to write about them at the moment. How's it going? Strangely. So, Whitney, in addition to the romance, there is also these conversations that uh, he has, uh, Adam has, with his dead parents, played by Claire Foy and Jamie Bell. Tell us more about how that works in this movie.
0: Uh, it's a little unclear as to what is literally happening in this movie. The atmosphere is very ethereal. Uh the Andrew Scott character and the Paul Mescal character live in this gigantic uh, apartment building and they keep on mentioning how they might be the only two occupants in this gigantic apartment building. It feels weirdly post-apocalyptic. So you'd be forgiven uh, for thinking this is a science fiction picture. Uh, But the Andrew Scott character gets on the train, he goes to his old childhood home and his parents are just there, younger, the way they looked when he was 12 years old, right before they died. And he starts having conversations with them and they all understand that this is the adult version of their son, that they're catching up with him from the future, and they start to come to a new kind of understanding. It's very abstract. Maybe he is just having these conversations in his imagination. He's trying to reconcile his relationship with his parents that he feels he never really got to develop because they died when he was 12, and how their absence and his inability to connect with them when he was young has bled into his... uh, adult life and his future romances there's a really heartbreaking scene where he has to come out to his mom because he never got to when he was 12 and it's incredibly painful because she's still living in the 1980s and responding the way a person living in the 1980s might it really uh starts to tear open a lot of really horrible wounds about how this grief and this trauma is never really dealt with in a way that feels satisfactory to us, even as we bring these things into our adult relationships. Healing is possible, but life is a constant state of healing. There is a twist at the end that kind of codifies what exactly was going on in terms of it being imaginary, in terms of being supernatural, that maybe places a little bit too many rules on this and it starts having you ask questions about how this universe was supposed to work that part wasn't handled so well but up until that point I appreciated the naturalness the the sort of downbeat examination that the filmmakers clearly wanted to put us through
1: all right so that sounds good Amy this has been getting a lot of Oscar buzz what did you think
2: Yeah, very much. And the the buzz has been so, so much centered on the performances, you know, because Andrew Scott and Paul Moscow have kind of emerged as darlings. And Mm -hmm. to see them together, just like sharing these scenes, it's fantastic. Double darlings. Double darlings, double darlings. They're doubling down (laughs) on the darlingness. I mean, yeah, it's an interesting combination to have a movie that's like very talky, almost all kind of conversations just between people sitting in rooms but yet that also really just captures this like mood of loneliness and yeah in a way like like Whitney is pointing out that's kind of almost slightly comical you know there's a gag at the beginning of the film that his building is so empty that when a fire alarm goes off at this giant skyscraper you know Andrew Scott is one of the only people who comes out and you know as you're watching kind of his relationship with his parents develop and this is a film that sort of Makes you chase after it just a little bit to figure out what's going on. part of what I found really interesting about it is you're looking at sort of these different generation gaps in kind of how people feel about like their son coming out as like gay, and there's these different jet g- gaps kind of even happening within the film where like his parents are more old school Andrew Scott's kind of like you know a gen Xer and Paul Mesgal is more like a young millennial who grew up in a period I would say of more progressiveness around him but he also kind of carries a lot of pain and he seems to sort of wrestle with like yeah maybe this seemed easier in the way the conversations went but it doesn't mean that like my life has gotten easier about this and so they're also kind of wrestling with like the last you know 30 35 years of what it has been like to be out of the closet you know here Mm -hmm. in our culture It's, it's a chilly film but you really do grow to care about all four characters there's like a a romance that definitely kind of tugs at your heart like you want so much here for these characters because just like they're drowning in in this isolation
1: wow that sounds very bleak (laughs) oh no (laughs) a bunch of bleak movies this week oh no All of us strangers in select theaters. Finally, another bleak movie about grief and same-sex relationships. Good Grief is the feature directorial debut from Dan Levy of Schitt's Creek fame. He wrote it as well and stars in it and produced it. He plays a man named Mark who's mourning the sudden death of his husband.
0: I've been reading that the brain is like a muscle. That's why getting over a death is so hard because your brain has been trained to feel things for a person when they go away your head is still operating under the impression that it should feel those things for that person like muscle memory i think we'll hold off
2: on the wheel for today
1: okay so dan levy we know amy from schitt's creek there's not a lot of comedy in this one um what did you think
2: yeah, he's really trying to prove that he can do sad, too, that his career can have more range. But the problem with this movie, it you know, about that's mostly about like the year after of his life after his husband dies, is that it's, you know, aspiring to be like sensitive and perceptive and emotionally moving and to really delve into loss. And I just couldn't buy much of it. You know, there's lots of monologues, but they felt to me like inspirational Instagram captions about becoming a better person, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of writing and yeah. and it's hard to kind of wrestle with like how we associate dan levy with this character you know it's not he's kind of cornered the market on playing like shallow disingenuous you know elder millennial and it this kind of just doesn't feel like the right role just to, to show his range it doesn't really fit him and he just seems a bit like flatlined and mopey and it throws you off the track right at the beginning where you think maybe this film is going to have some lightness to it. And you think, oh, OK, great. This film's going to be able to thread this needle of like comedy and pathos. But it absolutely doesn't. And I really wish it would have it sticked more in that lane. All right, Whitney, are you as disappointed and
1: confused by this movie as Amy is? Um, a, a little
0: disappointed, <laughs> yes. Uh, she, she's dead on about the Instagram post writing, the monologue after monologue after monologue about how you're dealing with grief uh, it gets pretty tiresome after a while. There's not a lot of balance. I feel like Dan Levy, as a director, though, does present at least a few strengths. There are a few scenes where he's having conversations, just conversations, not the monologue scenes, with his best friends, who are played by uh, Ruth Nega and Himesh Patel. And they uh, communicate very naturally. They have a very warm, believable relationship. Those kinds of hangout scenes bring out a lot of humanity in the characters and in the movie as well and i kind of wish there was more of that more of incidental conversation rather than dan levy kind of trying to write his own therapy session oh
1: god okay well um good grief in select theaters now streaming on netflix beginning on friday and that'll do it for a pretty bleak first outing of (laughs) twenty twenty four the 2024 segment (laughs) <laughs> okay, let's hope it gets a little sunnier going forward. Whitney Seibold is a senior staff writer at Slash Film and co hosts the podcast, critically acclaimed. Amy Nicholson hosts the podcast Unspooled and also reviews for the New York Times. Thank you both and Happy New Year.
0: Happy, New Year.
2: Happy, happy, happy New Year to you.